Uh, we can turn back to the chapter we read, uh, Nahum uh, chapter 1. And we can read again verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. I suppose one of the difficulties that we face is the silence of God. I mean, it is a question to ask, isn't it? When did God last speak? I know there's lots of instances, innumerable instances in providence that we might say about it, well, God is speaking. But how do we know that? I'm sure that problem is not confined to the 21st century. I mean, as far as we know, the last time God has definitely spoken is 2,000 years ago. The author of Hebrews tells us that, that God in previous generations spoke by his, by different ways, by prophets and so on. And in these last days, he has spoken unto us by his son. But he spoke 2,000 years ago. And as far as um, anything global is concerned, the next time God is going to speak is the day of the second coming. So it could be said that we are living in a period marked by the silence of God. Obviously, he does do things. He has never been inactive. Constantly, today, he is aware of everything that goes on and is to a greater or less extent, involved in all of them. But in each of them, he says nothing. That's why we have to live by faith. I mean, if God was to speak every two minutes, what need would there be of faith? We would just be waiting for the next announcement two minutes later. And our faith at times can be challenged, can't it? Because one of the common things that's said to us is, 
Where is your God? And we know the answer. Our God is in the heaven. But what does he say about 2023? What has he said in 2023? We live and we can't get out of it. We live in the period in which God last spoke 2,000 years ago. Of course, the fact that he spoke so long ago doesn't mean what he said is irrelevant. I mean, he is the unchanging God. So what he wishes to say to us, from that point of view, doesn't actually matter when he said it. If he is unchanging, if his truth remains the same constantly, if he has said it once, why does he need to say it again? It's enough for us, as the writer of Hebrews, who after Speaking about God having spoken in Jesus goes on to say he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what he said back then is all we need to hear today. But I suppose there was a similar problem in the days of Nahum. God seemed to be silent. And it was a very difficult time for the people of God in Judah. And what made life difficult for them was Nineveh. By the time Nahum comes along, Nineveh has already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So the people in Judah could look across the border and say, the ten tribes that used to be there, they've gone. And there's no sign that the circumstances are going to change until Nahum came with his message. But it must have been difficult for them, mustn't it? Just put yourself in their shoes. I mean, who were they? A nation of two little tribes, surrounded by powerful nations with different degrees of power. But at the head of the list was Nineveh. And they were not only powerful, they were cruel. And where's God? Now, of course, we can analyze it 
theologically, and we can say, well, God was using Nineveh to punish all the other nations. And he, and he was doing that. It wasn't just Israel that Nineveh conquered and removed around the planet. They conquered all the surrounding nations that had existed before then. And yes, we can look at them and say, well, yeah, God is using them. He's using that cruel nation to punish these other nations. And of course, it's very easy for us to say that 3,000 years later. Or we could even say, well, he's actually punishing the people of God. God is using them to punish his own people. Because these ten tribes that had disappeared, they had engaged in fear, fearful idolatry. And God came along and sent Nineveh. They were his tool. And again, it's easy for us, 3,000 years later, to say that. What else can be said about Nineveh? Well, a hundred years before this, Nineveh had experienced what perhaps was the greatest revival in the Old Testament with the preaching of Jonah. I mean, we're familiar with Jonah and how that nation, sorry, that city of I guess 120,000 people all, con all repented. And of course, it's so different from anything else that people look at that and say, well, does it actually mean genuine repentance? Which is a rather extraordinary thing to say when God himself says it was repentance. But a century has passed. And a lot of things can happen in a century. All we have to do is think of what our country was like a century ago. I mean, we're surrounded by people who have no idea what God was doing a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, there were signs here and there that God was still working powerfully. Not as dramatically as he did in Nineveh. But still, Nineveh had experienced that revival, but a hundred years later, it had been forgotten. Indeed, the there's no mention of it in the annals of Nineveh. It had actually been purged from its history. And it's very easy to rewrite the history books. As is happening today in our society. And the people were looking at this. Where is God? 
and maybe we are too. And if we're not asking that question, there's something wrong. But Nineveh's message was, well, God's about to appear. And when he does appear, it's going to be too much for the creation. Never mind a city made by men. We can see that there in the verses um, 2 to 6. What is it like for God to show his anger? Well, one of the extraordinary things about it is that he shows his anger through the creation. And that is what is said there, verses 2 to 6. All the various descriptions that are given that affects the creation. Not just the earth, but the heavens and so on. The sea, the mountains, and... I don't know what went through your mind when you're reading 2 to 6. But it went through my mind, it's just like a news bulletin. Fires and floods and all kinds of other things like that. Upheaval in the created order. And Nahum says, God is coming. That's the answer to the problem. God is coming. And Nineveh will be a ruin, as verses 8 to 15 say. And that happened a short time after Nahum was delivering his message. The invincible city disappeared. And God arises. It doesn't take long. Nineveh thought it would last forever. It's been gone now for 3,000 years. And therefore, Nahum says to his people in Judah, his listeners, when you are waiting for God to speak, for God to act, remember who he is. And he mentions that in verse 7. Now we might expect uh, the prophet to describe the what we might want to call the positive features of God in a long list of details. We might expect his description of the, the helpful side of God to be a lot longer than the message about him that is that's going to involve judgment. But it's not, is it? One verse, 
to describe the benefits of God. And lots of other verses to describe when he shows his anger. And of course that tells us surely that um, one verse is enough. Doesn't it? Imagine sitting listening to Nahum. And he lists the details that describe the arrival of God to bring judgment. And there's this long list, verses 2 to 6, and the ones following verse 7. But about the benefits of God, well, it's just this one verse stuck in the middle of it all. But sometimes the difference between two things makes all the difference. And this brief summary of God, it might be short in the number of words, but it also depends on whether it's long enough to meet our needs. And is verse 7 sufficient for us? As we live in our Nineveh. It's surprising where we find verses in the Bible. Verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. This is not the only place in the Bible that this verse is found. It's found in Isaiah chapter 52. And which tells us, doesn't it, that Nahum had either heard about Isaiah 52 or read it. And if you look at Isaiah 52, which is dealing with the problems that were facing Israel, it is, and very likely also against Nineveh. It's announcement of coming restoration had already been made in Isaiah 52. That God in his mercy gets Nahum to repeat it a good while later. And says that my promises, however unlikely they seem to be in getting fulfilled, will be fulfilled. But Isaiah 52, which is the first mention of this statement in verse 15, is Nahum is not the only other place where it's mentioned. Because it's mentioned by Paul, I think in Romans 10. 
Behold how beautiful are the feet of those who come offering peace. But the, the question I think we're meant to ask is, peace in what circumstances? And I think the answer to that question is, peace in circumstances where it's impossible for anyone else to do anything about it. Paul, there, the, Paul's use of it, talks about Israel. And there in Romans, he's describing how they have rebelled against God and been cut off. And what's going to happen with them? The same thing seems to be here in Nahum chapter 1. Israel has been taken into captivity, the ten tribes. And in Isaiah 52, well, who can deliver us from this awful oppression? The answer is God. And that leads us to think, doesn't it? Who is he? And Nahum here mentions two things about him. He talks about the Lord is good. And the second one is he provides security. He's a stronghold in the time of trouble. And of course, the time of trouble, or the day of trouble, doesn't mean a 24-hour day. It's the period of trouble. So, Nahum says to his listeners, in the, day of, in the days of the silence of God, he's saying to them and to us, remember the Lord is good, and remember that he is always a stronghold in the day of trouble. So I just want us to think about these two things. God's goodness. Well, we should note the verb. The Lord is good. I mean, perhaps uh, the um, people of Judah at this time when Nea was ministering well, they were judging things by their circumstances. And they just seemed to be getting squeezed. And their circumstances were dire. Nineveh is there. We want to put it this way, it's like a big elephant about to attack a mouse. God's in charge of providence. If we judge him by his providence, then we might get it wrong. The Lord is good. Constantly good. 
And, of course, the Bible plays in that in numerous ways. Paul, writing to the, the Romans, says that God is able to work all things for good. And if we had shifted that verse back into the days of Nahum, that would include all the threats from Nineveh. God is able to work all of them for good. And the reason why he does that is that he is good. Moses asked God, show me your goodness. I have no idea what Moses expected to see. If you had asked that question, what would you expect to see? Lord, show me your goodness. Now we are told what God showed to him. What God showed to him was his mercy. Abundant in mercy, in goodness and truth. The Lord God, gracious and merciful, who doesn't deal with us the way our sins deserve. And that was true for the people of Judah as for us. The goodness of God. We could say it functions at two levels. It functions in a general sense. I mean, a short time ago we thought about the signs of God's anger in the created order. But there's also signs of God's goodness in the created order. There is, as Paul and Barnabas told the people in Asia Minor, he sends you harvests every year. They keep on coming. You don't deserve to get any of them, but God keeps on sending you harvests. That's his goodness. One of the things that we're urged to do at times is to count our blessings. I suppose it is quite a good thing to do at um, 10 minutes after we have got up to count our blessings for that day that have happened in the last 10 minutes. And if we sit down and, and do count them, we discover that there's numerous blessings. And, and God has, we might say, silently provided them. And if we were to do that for an entire day, think of how many notebooks we could fill of this evidences of the goodness of the silent God. So he does that in a general sense to people, and he does that just whether they're good or bad. And Jesus said that. The Lord causes the sun to shine on the good and the bad, and rain as well. And we can extend that to everything he does. So there's a general sense of the goodness of God. It's just happening in great amounts every single day. There's also a spiritual sense of the goodness of God. 
And even in that spiritual sense, we can divide it into two. And there's the, the spiritual goodness that God shows to everyone. And, and what is that? Well, we know what that is. It's the good news. I mean, the God of heaven has really good news for everyone. doesn't matter where they are or what they're doing. The God of heaven has really good news for them. Even as he had previously to Nineveh, shown them good news. When Jonah had gone there with his message of that judgment would be averted if they repented. And throughout the world today, probably in every single country of the world, even in those that are doing their best to stamp it out, the goodness of God is announced. We could say the silent God is speaking. And he is speaking in the, every time the gospel is said. And where is that not happening? The fact that people refuse to turn up to listen to it, or when they do hear it, they dismiss it as irrelevant or as nonsense, doesn't mean that God is not showing his goodness. And this offer of mercy through faith in Christ is given at this moment if he or she happens to be hearing it to the greatest sinner in the world. And what greater goodness could be shown than that? And even as it is told to that great sinner, whoever he is, is told to every other sinner who hears it. If you repent of your sins, you'll be forgiven. But his goodness is also seen in spiritual things, isn't it? To us, what do we know with certainty as we live when God is silent? What do we know with certainty? Well, we know how pardon comes. And if we have believed in Jesus, we know we have been justified. Accepted as right in the sight of God. We don't need another announcement from heaven to tell us that. We know that we have been adopted into his family. We don't need a visit from, some, from an angel to tell us that. It's in his word. As true today as it ever was. At this moment we have all the promises that are written in his word. They don't become truer. If somehow or other something astonishing happens to us. His word is true. And all his promises are good. 
and they reflect the character of the good God. And he has given to us also prospects of the glory to come. What difference would it make to us if, if someone came back from heaven to say to us, it's all true? Their arrival wouldn't make it truer. So although God is, in a certain sense, silent, what he said 2,000 years ago is still the truth. And it's what we need as we wait for his arrival. And to say to ourselves every day, the Lord is good. And it is important that we say that. And he shows his goodness by being a stronghold in the center in the day of trouble. You know, there's one of the things I like to do is go around castles. And the striking thing about castles or at least one striking thing about them is they've got lots of rooms. And as I look at the rooms, I just say, well, whatever the commander of the castle happened to be, it was impossible for him to know at every moment what was happening in every room. But when we come to God as a stronghold, he knows. He knows everything about everyone who's hiding in his, in him as a castle. We've all seen films and things like that of people when a threat came that they rushed across the drawbridge into the castle. The person who, who owned the castle or who was in charge of the castle, he would no, have no idea if everybody had managed to get in. Uh, nor would he know everyone who had got in. But our God, he does know. He knows everyone that's taken refuge in him. And this continues. Even after that particular time of trouble might be over, he doesn't become a stronghold only when the moment is necessary. I mean, the people that rushed across the drawbridge, they would run out again once the trouble was over. But we don't have to leave our stronghold. We are just there in God. How is God our stronghold? I mean, he is our stronghold whether we think about him fully or not. Even in the same way as somebody who rushed into a castle didn't need to get a ruler out and measure the thickness of the walls. But it might have helped a person if they did me measure the thickness of the walls. Because he may know just how far a cannonball could penetrate. 
and it would help his own personal assurance if he knew that the wall was thick enough to cope with a cannonball. So therefore we have to think about God. And I suppose there's lots of ways of doing that. The one way it shouldn't be is when someone says, I like to think of God in this way. And something is said. It just happens to be drawn from nowhere. We should like to think about God in the way he has revealed himself. And we can think about him and his attributes. Of course, we're not to divide God up into different sections and say one bit is love and one bit is power and one bit is mercy and so on. God is, at every moment, everything that his attributes say he is. He's always love and he's always power and he's always wise. And his power is wise and loving. But it helps us to divide them up, as it were. And, and it's very good to do that. I mean, why are we here at this moment? Well, it's a result of the love of God. The power of God the wisdom of God, even the holiness of God. We're allowed into his presence. And we can be in his presence at all times, even though he is the Holy One. And his wisdom arranges our providences. And his love ensures us that he's present. And we can think of how they, the three divine persons participate. The love of God, well, there's the Heavenly Father's love expressed in election and adoption. And there's the love of the Son, his redeeming love. And there's the love of the Spirit, his sanctifying love. And we can do that with all their attributes. And just say to ourselves, this is my fortress. Until he next speaks. But we can also get comfort in their person. Because God is not um, something distant and detached. And although he's far greater than us, there is a certain sense in which since we are made in his image, that there are certain similarities, if that's the right word, I mean, God is a community, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
which tells us that relationships are crucial to him. And when we trust in him, when we trust in Jesus, although we're not conscious of it at the time, we're actually trusting in the triune God. And at that moment, the Heavenly Father becomes our Father. And the Holy Spirit instantaneously becomes our indweller. And it's important to think about that. If God is with us, says Paul, what can be against us? If the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are with us, what can be against us? And as Nahum says, and we'll stop in a minute, he says there, God knows those who take refuge in him. How many are doing that today around the globe? Millions and millions. And God knows everything about each of them. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 1, doesn't he, as he contrasts the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And he knows the way of the righteous in a very different way from how he knows the way of the wicked. The Lord knows the ways of the righteous because he's with them. Whatever, and and that Psalm 1 is full of decision making. As As the psalmist decides what not to do and so on, it's full of decision making. And God is with them as these decisions are made. And of course, there's the worst of Job. Job's going through the mill. What's his comfort? Didn't get much comfort from his three friends. But he got comfort from this. Ouch. The Lord knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And the Lord knows the circumstances of everyone in taking refuge in him. We can see from this example of the Nahum that it's actually good, isn't it? to take one of God's attributes and just think about it. When he got into the fortress, he just didn't say, oh, how good it is to be here. I mean, that's just a general comment, which may or may not mean anything. Why was it good to be there? He tells us 
because the Lord knows. And his knowledge includes appreciation and persistence and love. Our God, the God who is with us and we with him in the days of his silence. So we have a God who can be for us a personal, powerful, permanent refuge. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks that you have spoken in your word. And there's a very real sense in which we don't need anything else. Help us, Lord, to know the power of your word, the comfort, the direction, the consolation, the wisdom that's found there. We thank you that you have spoken. You have spoken in your Son. And because that has happened, we have your final word until you next speak again when Jesus returns. Lord, help us to pay attention to what you say and to live according to it. For your own name's sake. Amen.